Hi, and welcome to Mountain Talk. Tonight, we have two special segments for you, both dealing with food and fiber in Appalachia. Appalachian Transition Fellow Hope Hart brings us our first interview with fellow Appalachian Transition Fellow Courtney Boyd. The Appalachian Transition Fellows Program is based out of the Highlander Research and Education Center in Northeast Tennessee. The Appalachian Transition Fellows are emerging community leaders who are from and or dedicated to the Central Appalachian region and who are interested in supporting and working towards the transition of a sustainable and equitable region. Fellows are placed in host communities made up of two or three organizations from the region. After hearing from Courtney and Hope, you'll get to hear Appalachian Transition Fellow Sam Hamlin's interview with an alpaca farmer in East Kentucky. Hello, my name is Hope Hart and I'm an Appalachian Transition Fellow with the Highlander Center in Newmarket, Tennessee. I'm one of 10 other fellows this year who are placed throughout the Appalachian region, working with various nonprofits who are supporting these mountains and this area that people call home. My host organization is Apple Shop, and as a communications fellow, with the help of Apple Shop and Highlander, I've been able to spread the news about the hard work that these fellows are doing, and it's been a lot of fun because they're my close friends as well. Most recently, I did an interview with Courtney Boyd, who is working in Huntington, West Virginia. Her position is focused on food and local foods, and she's been working with farmers and farmers markets and local distributors who are supporting more local food in the area. As someone that's grown up in this region, she's thought a lot about how food impacts our families and how it's connected to our culture and quality of life. And this interview was very interesting. I learned a lot, and I hope that you can enjoy it too. This is Courtney Boyd, the App Fellow in Huntington, West Virginia. My name is Courtney, and I work here in Huntington as an Appalachian Transition Fellow. I work with three different organizations, Unlimited Future, Refresh Appalachia, and The Wild Ramp. And so Unlimited Future is a business incubation space and we help businesses get started and we have like a particular focus on farming and food businesses so working with farmers to help you know their farms thrive and help them like learn the business side of things and then the wild ramp is a local food store they started a few years ago and have been an outlet for farmers to sell the produce that they raise in the area and then refresh appalachia is Kind of a combination of things but they have they're starting a food hub which is like a word that you hear all the time but food <laughs> hub basically means it could be lots of different things but it means a place to bring food together from different sources so different farmers and then distribute it to people because that's kind of the way the food the current like food system works for everybody else and so restaurants are used to that and like people are used to buying in a certain way and so that's one of the limits for farmers like if you're just a small scale farmer is trying to get your food out there you know when you have you don't have the same system that other that big ag can use yeah. if that makes sense mm -hmm. so it's a place to bring food together and then help to distribute it to different things different locations that's one project they work on but they also work on training young people or anyone in general from areas where 
coal has been in decline and industry has been in decline and there aren't a lot of jobs for people to have and they want to help increase like the agricultural sector by training people on how to farm especially like kind of newer ways of farming in terms of season extension with high tunnels um, so you can grow into the winter time and stuff like that it's kind of the three organizations that I predominantly work for but I do feel like in addition to that there's lots of ways for me to branch out into the community and be involved in more citywide type efforts to hmm. improve the local economy and improve the agricultural scene and stuff like that in the area um, so I don't just stay within those organizations necessarily there's lots of room to work on a bigger picture most people in America have the experience of, well, not most people, but quite a lot of people of kind of like my background, being a white middle-class person, have parents and grandparents who were involved in like local food production, even if it's just on like a small scale in their backyards. So pretty much across the board, there was a lot more food grown on a small scale in the past. And starting with my parents' generation, Agriculture moved into really big conglomerate business style, scientifically based on like efficiency and not on anything else pretty much. <laughs> so that's where we have like the giant farms and agriculture and pesticides and big huge machines and stuff like that. So that's kind of like the direction that modernization took. And through the course of that time, like people can pretty understandably look at that and see that it's not working, that it's like, removing all the topsoil, it's degrading the landscape, the food is not quality, health is poor. And so there's just like on a policy level as like a, as a nation, there's a lot of problems with the way that we do agriculture. And the movement is, you know, today I feel like is a lot of people recognize that that isn't working. So what should we be doing and how do we like move into something that does work? And it's really complicated and tricky for many hosts of reasons. There's just lots of things to think about and consider when it comes to that. And I think like in terms of Appalachia, there's the history of people just growing food in little corners and little spots and like, and having their own personal garden. So I think like what I see is like the future for agriculture that I would hope could be the vision that we all share is to have like that we move away from what we currently have on a big scale with farming and move into a diversity of different things that could be going on. You know, like whether it's lots of people growing a little bit of food in their backyard or making mm -hmm. like just an effort to, you know, grow some tomatoes or mm -hmm. something like that. But more also just like a sharing of food and an understanding that like this food tastes better and this food is better for you. and there's better what there's it's easier to connect with other people and to have more of like a community setting when you have this food present and so trying to get back into that i think is mm -hmm. really important and as far as like organizations like refresh and other places that are trying to like help build a local food economy that's important too they can be working on trying to help farmers with distribution for example but then also like what can we be doing in our everyday lives to share food more? There's, I don't know, there's so many different ways to do things, but the little things I feel like 
can be really, really important in like transforming a place and creating like a positive impact. So just as like a small little example, um, a neighbor in Kentucky, uh, she was growing like her own little vegetable plot in her backyard. And then a lot of her neighbors had their own little plots as well, but they were all just growing and then taking it into their house. And, um, but she had this idea of like, well, how could we all grow just like a few more feet under our garden, add like three feet and grow turnips. And then you grow beets and you grow carrots. And then we all have a little bit surplus extra that we can share around. And so they were doing this kind of little group of urban farmers that were cooperating in a way that was a little bit different than what you typically do. So it's about changing like kind of the lifestyle that we have. It's about like moving into more community-based types of things that we can do to like just increase happiness and like and increase more food and culture-based things that are more positive. And so I feel hopeful that there's a lot of room for that. And I think like the history of Appalachians growing a lot of the food here is like a positive thing that can be used. In my own experience with that, just in my family, my dad grew up really poor. And so he always like felt like he was denied a lot of those modern things that existed in the world and like knew about them, but he felt just uh, kind of resentful of the poverty that he was surrounded by when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think like he worked really, really hard to establish his business and get himself like to a point where he could have a more luxurious and like easy lifestyle in that way. And I think a lot of people of that generation could see like the horizon and like the modern aspects of life. Modern convenience. Yeah, and they were kind of denied those. Like they weren't, they weren't given opportunity to have those things and so I think it created a lot of like thinking of those modern things as like what will make life good and so we have to have those that's what makes life good and then like as someone who grew up like with parents who kind of had that uh, expectation in life but in my personal view I didn't want that I didn't want anything really similar to that at all like I really kind of resented those things instead of like wanting to fit into that. I wanted something totally different. And I, I thought like, you know, I began to kind of idolize the past and like what my grandparents would have been doing versus the current, the lifestyle we were leading. I would say there's probably um, a lot of people who are, are kind of like of my parents' mindset who think that like, you know, just kind of like what we were just talking about with modernity and like the, mm -hmm the way that that makes people feel in terms of like their value in the world, I guess. Like if you have this, if you have income or if you can have the luxury to not have to grow your food, then um, you've made it, I guess, mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I think like there's probably a lot of that kind of mindset that exists. I think it's understandable where it comes from. And like, mm -hmm. I don't know, another thing that is kind of interesting is just like whiteness and how that plays in with all of this because I kind of like see that uh, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this there's kind of like um, well I heard this this interview with Ruby Sales who's like a civil rights leader and like prominent African-American woman who was recorded and she was playing on the radio one day 
she was saying, she was talking about like how there is kind of like a spiritual crisis in white America and how, um, and it, it kind of ties in with me and like what I'm thinking about how poverty plays into the way that people view themselves kind of. And so like, I think, I don't know how to exactly say this, but I think there's a lot of like, a lot to do with whiteness where people feel, you know, if you're, if you're like a poor white person, you feel more aligned with like white people who maybe have more money than you do other people, like people of color and other um, groups who don't have money. And so you automatically want to identify along race lines and like look at, um, well, I don't have all these luxuries and this money that other white people might have and that's because I'm not good enough or because I haven't tried hard enough kind of thing. And so we judge each other within like white communities and we say like, well, this person hasn't tried very hard and that's why they're poor. So there's like less of people identifying along class lines and feeling like, um, no, I identify with this person of color who also has low resources and money. And we can like understand that these barriers are kind of imposed on us versus like, um, systematic as yeah. opposed to individual fault. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's like a big thing with that when it comes to like being white. And I think when it comes to food, that's very much tied into poverty and like what people have access to and what they can afford. And so it's all just like really complicated. And I am continually trying to like reframe my thinking or wrap my head around certain things and like, try to make sure that I'm approaching things in a way that I'm thinking really critically about what the issues are and what I'm, what we're up against when it comes to food and who can grow it and who wants to grow it and who has access to it and who can gets to eat it and like everything. I feel like it's one of the most important things that we can be doing is working on food related, doing food work, just simply because it's like, so in, it's so much a part of our cultures about it's so much a part of like our everyday lives and it's so necessary and it's like important to have positive ways of looking at it and positive ways of growing food mm -hmm. that are helpful for the planet and helpful for people and so it's, it's just like super central i think to what kind of work needs to be done in the world but it's also like one of the most complicated things to work on, I think too. Maybe that's just my opinion, but I just feel like it's it's so complicated and intertwined completely with race and class and everything. And it's all like meshed together and it's like a big tangled ball of yarn. <laughs> and it's really hard to figure out which string to pull to like untangle this one part. But it's really important that people at least try and try to have like, open conversations about what is happening and what like the barriers are to food. Mm -hmm. um, not only on like a food access level, but also on like a farmer level. So one thing I've been talking about recently and thinking about is like the fact that um, there are consumers and people who access food on one end of like the local food spectrum. And when you say access food, you mean like the people who buy food? Buy food and okay. consume food. So okay. like everybody pretty much. Right. <laughs> but, but then like on the other end of the spectrum, there's people that produce food. So okay. farmers. Mm -hmm. And they seem really separate and they're like on 
you know, these two ends of the system, I guess. Like, this is the starting point, this is the end yeah. point. Yeah, exactly. But really, there, there's a lot of, like, crossover and kind of meshing of those two groups in terms of, like, the barriers that people face to succeeding in the things that they want, whether it's, like, the barriers people face to having a small farm and, like, sustaining an income that they can actually, like, live off of if you're a small farmer. And then on, you know, if someone is food insecure, the barriers that they face come from like the same source. So I think that that's kind of interesting to think about like how these two different groups really cross over and how like how hard it is to make an income off farming. And sometimes farmers themselves are of a low income bracket. And so it's just kind of like a lot of mixing mm -hmm. of these things. and. And it's hard to know where one thing starts and one thing mm -hmm. ends. And I guess that's just life. It's just like yeah. all mixed together, you know, but. Yeah. The, the term food insecure, you know, that's a term that I use, but I would say I definitely learned that more recently. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And like, can you explain like who is food insecure? What does that yeah. mean? Yeah, I think there's always new words that are coming out in my opinion that like gain popularity that people use. And I'm just as, guilty of using these words and thinking like, oh, everybody knows what this means or it has the same meaning for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so just using those words can be kind of troublesome sometimes and in, mm -hmm. in figuring out like how to talk about things. In general, a lot of people in the whole entire country, but in Appalachia and in Huntington too, you know, they don't have access to food in a way that they can afford the expensive price of like healthy local food. And like food insecure is basically anyone, you know, whether they are hungry from time to time because they don't have enough food mm -hmm. or whether or not their access to food just isn't stable enough where yeah. it's like a point of stress or it's mm -hmm. a point of concern day to day. Yeah. yeah, I think all of those things in addition to like where access points are located mm -hmm. within cities or um, rural areas as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of like rural places don't have grocery stores anymore just from population decline. A lot of urban areas have different things going on with where food retail is located based on like income and even racism and things like that. So, mm -hmm. so it's all like really mm -hmm. pretty messy, but I just, all I know is that there are people that are hungry and we live in a country with so much wealth and resources and it's just disturbing like that this is the reality of this country and like how we want to operate is like in this way where we pretend like it's okay that people don't have uh, good food to eat and we just ignore it and we pretend that it's okay that like small farmers can't make a living growing food and so it's just there's just an issue there and I don't know how to unravel it, but I'm just gonna try to keep working on picking away at that like large tangled mess of yarn and trying to mm -hmm. trying to figure it out. In terms of this tangled ball of yarn, mm -hmm. what's one aspect within this tangle that you feel like you feel like you are picking away at that you mm -hmm. are able to pick away at just by having a, a garden in your backyard yeah. or someone that has just a few like pots that have a tomato plant in it, mm -hmm. like. What is, what is an aspect of the yarn, this tangled web mm -hmm. that that's picking away at? Well, I think um, one big thing that's important to me when it comes to like growing my, well, there's two big things that I would, I would mention. 
or maybe three or four or five, <laughs> but like, um, uh, starting out, I'll, I'll say that like, um, one thing that I've, I've, I like try to embody when it comes to growing food, um, is a certain resourcefulness, uh, when it comes to like what is required to grow food. So it's actually quite easy, quite simple, but, um, we, you know, if, since we have this like big break in the tradition of growing food, we don't necessarily recognize like how easy it can be. And so we look at modern types of things that we need in order to grow food. So someone might say like, well, I need to build this fancy greenhouse in my backyard and I need to um, truck in like, uh, I need to pay lots of money for these bags of dirt and bring this in here. And then I need to build a bed out of wood that I buy at Home Depot. And then I need to buy the seeds and then I need to um, get the fertilizers and put them on the plants and let them grow. But one thing that's really important to me is to try to uh, find the like sources of those things that come from like the waste stream versus trying to buy things. And so not even just with like, because it's expensive, but also there's so much stuff that that is just like tossed aside all throughout the city of Huntington or throughout other places too that are perfect for growing food with. So whether it's like um, materials like wood that you could find or bricks or cinder blocks that, you know, are from a building that's being torn down or something like that to like uh, mucking out a barn that, you know, someone that has cows and you're just gonna go like muck out their barn and put that in your yard or finding like composted leaves or something from last year that are in somebody's like backyard. So there's all, there's just all these things that are basically what nature uses to create plant life and other life. So they're already there and they don't have to come packaged in a bag or anything, even though that might be more convenient. There's lots of other ways to approach it. And so that's just like really central when it comes to farming for me is, mm -hmm. is like the resourcefulness that is kind of needed, mm -hmm. but also in the history of Appalachia and like people trying to live in a way when you didn't have a lot of money and trying to grow food, there's people embodied kind of like that resourcefulness and thriftiness as like a part of the culture. So I think like the history of that and going forward is something that I want to try to embody in my own life mm -hmm. as well. So that's a really important part of, of growing food for me. And then another important thing is like how to share this food because there is so much like abundance that grows on this planet and not even just when you attempt to grow a vegetable, but also like already growing all over the city, there's trees and things that like grow fruit or bear buds that you can eat or plants or whatever. And especially in the forest. So trying to like kind of reap that abundance and find ways to connect with people sharing food and being more just bringing people together over food imagine the times in your life where you come together with other people over food and you think of your great grandma preparing like a christmas dinner or cooking all kinds of christmas candies or someone bring like a baked good to a gathering and sharing that and um, or a potluck or any of those aspects that you think of you and you have like these really strong fond memories of those experiences 
it really gets to the root of food as being an act of love. And so like how um, when you cook or prepare something for others that you know others are gonna share, it really is totally different than when you stand over your sink eating like a bowl of leftover beans and rice or even like microwaving some kind of meal and eating yeah. that. There's just a really big difference. Food is needed to nourish us on like a physical level, but it also is very nourishing on like a community level too. And I think it's just a very loving thing to do is to cook for others and share food. And, and I love those aspects of life. out to rural Madison County, just outside of Richmond, to visit an alpaca farm owned and operated by Alvina Maynard. On a beautiful 83 degree day, we talked with Alvina about her love for alpacas and her visions for a more sustainable fiber movement. So I thought I'd start out just asking you, how did you get your start farming? Well, it was the question of what do you want to be when you grow up? And so I went and did the whole adulting thing and found out it's all it's all a farce. Don't do it, kids. If you're listening, don't grow up. So I didn't want to do the office cubicle never being outside because when I started asking myself what really makes me happy, being outside, being with nature out in the country was really where I found the most joy in life. And here I was locked up in an office all day long and sometimes not even seeing sunshine. So that that's not how I wanted to live the rest of my life. So I started doing some soul searching. I wanted something where I could be flexible, where I could be available for my children, where I could feed my, my love of nature and somehow turn that into a job and never work another day in my life was really the goal. So oddly enough, I saw a commercial for alpacas, had never thought about farming before. I, I don't know why, but I don't come from an agricultural background. So when I saw that commercial, it just piqued my curiosity. And being military, I found myself walking into a movement that I didn't know existed where veterans are transitioning into agriculture. That was another thing that piqued my interest. So I started looking into the resources that were coming available, the Farmer Veteran Coalition. So things like that all just started falling into place. And it was one of those divine intervention moments where God just said, yep, this is what you're supposed to do. Keep going. And here I am. Your story is definitely an inspiration. I'm curious did you have a background in fiber farming before you started with alpaca? I didn't have a background in agriculture, textiles, fashion, design, any of that. <laughs> I came to alpacas because, one, the divine intervention it just kind of happened that way. I'm weird, and so are alpacas, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> I, kinda, I like weird. I like different. And alpacas are uniquely efficient, dual-purpose livestock, and they're relatively new to the U.S. I figured everything else was kind of already taken. So this was something that was new that I could get in as it was being introduced to the United States. Alpacas were named officially livestock in the United States on the 2008 Farm Bill. So I could enter into the industry at its infancy and be a part 
of it maturing and growing. Whereas I felt like I would be trying to elbow my way in if I were trying to enter into another sector of agriculture. And I wanted, I wanted a space that provided genuine connection, experience, both adventure and tranquility at the same time. So alpacas, not only are they, they quiet animals, <laughs> they don't make a lot of noise all day, but they're relatively small livestock. They're easy to manage. They have padded feet instead of hooves. So all of those aspects appeal to having children around. I wanted to not have to be worried all the time about my kids wandering around in the barn. I wanted to feel safe. And alpacas are curious, but still standoffish. So they don't bombard you. They don't try and get up in your face. And they're not, they're not violent animals. They're not aggressive. So all of that kind of made sense and all fell together well. I think that my background in the military of building information networks and leveraging those information networks has served me well because it's not just about the health and care and upkeep of the alpacas, but it's definitely been a vertical learning curve in what do you do from there? You know, what do you do with the fiber or the rest of the animal even? What do you do from there? And so it's been a lot of research in all those different areas of the supply chain, building those connections with those different levels of the supply chain to understand and take our harvest into a profitable product. So I would say that that aspect of my previous life has served me well, even though I I had zero textile background. At least I knew how to talk to people and ask a whole bunch of questions and, and go after what I was looking for until I finally found it. So... Can you tell us a little bit more about what you do on your ranch and how many alpaca do you have and where do you sell your product? So I care for anywhere from 75 to 100 alpacas, depending on the time of year, which means I'm a grass farmer. Nobody clued me in and apparently I'm just an idiot and didn't think about it. If you raise animals that eat grass, you should probably learn how to grow grass I'm still learning. We're doing intensive rotational grazing now with movable electric fence. That's an adventure all in itself because there's all sorts of challenges with getting water out to the pasture as you're moving the fence and also shelter alpacas for their big babies. They don't like rain. So I have big open, you know, 10 acre fields that I'm trying to divide up into small paddocks and rotate them. So that means I got to think about their shelter. So what I have been doing is running them out and running them back in at night. <laughs> because if it rains at night, then they'll just be out there getting rained on. But more so to the sun. It's hot. So these are fiber-bearing animals. They're wearing sweaters all the time. So trying to think of how to make sure that they can still get access to the shade. We have tree lines that we try and incorporate into the paddocks on hot days. That's the summer months and uh, we take the their fiber off. We harvest via shearing, give them their haircut in April and we go through the whole harvest and decide with each animal's fleece what its best use is and the majority of our harvest gets sold to manufacturing companies that use economy of scale combined with other alpaca fiber farms in the United States 
to be able to manufacture much more efficiently than I could here on the farm by myself. We produce well over a thousand pounds. You produce generally around 10 pounds an animal. So there's no way in a lifetime that I could hand process that much fiber, let alone in a year, because next year we're shearing again. What I end up selling most here are those goods that have been professionally manufactured with our fiber. So socks, hats, gloves, scarves, shawls, blankets, rugs, all of those kinds of things that you can make from alpaca fiber. Another cool thing about alpacas is they do produce several different grades even on their, their body. We want to make sure nothing goes to waste if we can help it. So the fiber that comes off of their chest, belly, and legs, that's what goes into our rugs. It's still super soft, but it is too coarse to be made into something that's going to be worn close to your skin. It would end up being prickly. But it makes absolutely amazing rugs. And uh, so all the good stuff is what ends up going into the higher-end scarves and shawls that are amazingly super soft. We sell at Farmer's Market. We're in the downtown Richmond Farmer's Market and the Lexington Farmer's Market. And if you look at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or keep up with our newsletter, we post what days we're going to be at which markets. And we also sell alpaca meat. Alpacas are dual-purpose livestock. Pound for pound, they're 25% more efficient than beef. They taste like a sweet version of beef, but with the texture of tuna. And we want to make sure nothing goes to waste. So those animals that their fiber has coarsened, meaning that the fiber is not high enough quality anymore to be made into our profitable goods that we carry, that animal ends up costing us more money on the farm than it does making money for us. And so at that point is when we send them on to freezer camp. They go on to the great green pasture in the sky. And that also creates space for us to be able to continue breeding. We obviously have limited acreage. It can only have so many animals per acre on it. So selling alpaca meat also enables us to continue to keep our herd size up. Our meat products are carried at Good Foods Co-op in Lexington. There's a restaurant in Louisville, Game. Game Louisville has alpaca burger on their regular menu. I'm going to have to try that. It's delicious. <laughs> Great. And for folks who are looking to buy your products and might be listening, can you say again just where can people find you online? So our website is www.riverhillranch.us for United States. You can also find us on Facebook. It's three words, River Hill Ranch on Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, it's at River Hill Ranch. Just all run together. Great. What are the things that you're most excited about in the natural fiber sector? Well, one of the things that is a driving factor for me is living with purpose. And I think that despite me not planning this whole life out, you know, God's plan is better than any plan we could come up with ourselves. Caring for the world starts with caring for the earth. And I am super excited to be a part of this that just, it found me as this is a way that we can impact positive change in going forward is bringing that awareness to our relationship with our clothes and how that 
impacts our planet. I'm at farmer's market and it's still a lot of people look at me <laughs> with confusion in their eyes of why are you at farmer's market? Because not a lot of people understand where their clothes come from or what they're even made out of. I mean, most people have an idea of cotton and most people have an idea of wool, but most a lot of folks don't really pay attention to the content on the tag of their clothes anymore. In recent history, the slow food movement has seen a lot of success where it has brought that awareness mainstream where people are asking questions now of where their food comes from and what, what's in their food and what went into making, growing, processing their food. So that awareness is much more mainstream now. So I'm really excited that the slow fashion and slow clothes movement is also starting to gain traction and people are starting to ask those questions now where their clothes come from. And I'm not damning those of the past for doing what they thought was the right thing to do. I think that we've learned now that there is a better way than having consumable clothing. The fashion industry has made it so that they want us back in the store every three to six weeks. And so clothes have since become disposable. And yet, because synthetic fibers are cheaper, they're made predominantly by synthetics, which are plastic. They're not biodegradable. So not only have we increased our consumption rate of clothing, but we've also made them out of a non-biodegradable substance that is going into a landfill. This return to natural fibers coming back around to being mainstream is going to be a huge environmental impact. I'm super excited to be a part of it because obviously me starting this whole journey in the first place of, well, what makes you happy? You know, being out in nature, being out in the countryside, and that's very important to me. To be a part of preserving that and making it better into the future is really what we're all about. Change will really happen in our society when it's driven more by the demand. So consumers and designers who are the touch point, the retailers that are carrying the products in their stores, those are the ones putting products in front of the customers. I am the genesis of the supply chain. I am the fiber producer. Obviously the raw commodity that I produce has to exist in the first place for designers and retailers to even put those items in front of consumers. I would say that we have been slowly working through the supply chain, bringing manufacturing back to the United States in a way that is labor efficient, which is why it was exported in the first place, because it was too labor intensive, it was too expensive. And so, but thankfully technology has come so far that now we have 3D CAD knitting machines where items can be printed. We have automated cut machines where you, you have a laser cutting fabric. You have all these new technologies that make it so that the expensive labor has decreased dramatically. Going from the raw commodity all the way through to a finished garment, there's still a little bit of gaps when it comes to completing that total supply chain so it flows from one end to the other smoothly. There's a lot of challenges with natural fiber, which is a lot of the reason why textiles went to synthetics. Synthetics can be reproduced 
exactly the same time and time again. It is a man-made product and textile manufacturing equipment likes something that could be replicated easily and, and quickly. With natural fiber, it's not quick because you have to wait for the animal to grow it or you have to wait for the plant to reach maturity. So you can't rush nature, but also natural fibers are not exactly uniform. They do have variations in it. When it comes to manufacturing equipment, being able to adjust to those inconsistencies in natural fiber, some of the machines need to be, the settings on them need to be babied a little bit, as opposed to a synthetic, which would just be the same setting over and over again. Also, I see a lot of the slow clothes and slow fashion movement focusing on those natural fibers, but I don't see a lot of bringing the two worlds together. There is a number of associations that are wool growers, that are alpaca producers, now hemp farmers, natural fiber producers, marrying up with designers and retailers, clothing manufacturing companies. I'd like to see more marriage of bringing those two groups together so that we can understand the challenges that that each other face and work together through the manufacturing process. Because I think that because the margins in value-added production are higher than with just selling the raw commodity, I think a lot of folks like, like me are just trying to manufacture our own goods or our own finished product and selling those so that we can reap the benefit of it, get that higher margin profit for ourselves, for our farm. But really at the end of the day, I'm a farmer. I don't have any education in marketing, in design, in merchandising. I don't want to be spending my time as a sales rep. I don't want to be traveling around trying to pitch these finished goods to stores. Frankly, I don't have time for that. I need to be on the farm farming. So we need to be able to have all of those different aspects of the supply chain working together in a way that makes sense for all those involved. Speaking of some of the obstacles that you think fiber farmers are facing in Kentucky, what do you think would be beneficial or would help Kentucky fiber farmers to be able to grow their business and really move the sector up to scale? Well, what I see as not being a very fast, but a lot of promise into the future route is this exciting push for regenerative agriculture by using things like silvopasturing. Fleece-bearing animals in Kentucky have a hard time in the summers because it's hot and humid here. And also when it comes to growing grass, the alpacas are going to gravitate more towards the shade, which means they're going to decimate the grass that's in the shade and never touch the grass that's in the sun. So one thing that we're doing on our farm and that we're encouraging other alpaca producers in Kentucky to do is to start planting trees in a way where you can do alley grazing between the rows of trees. And you're also at the same time introducing another crop. The trees could be nut or fruit producing trees, between the spacing, you can plant shrubs, which could also be nut or fruit. And then even in the base of those, you could mulch and grow mushrooms. Introducing multiple species into the ecosystem 
while solving the problem of adding shade so that the alpacas eat the grass all over the farm and not just the outskirts of the pastures that have the trees already in them. Those production approaches that the challenge, of course, like I said, is, is the hot, humid climate. That's a production issue for us. So adding things like silvopasturing to your operation will be a cool way to be able to address that obstacle. Another obstacle that we have here is parasites because of the hot, humid climate. So we've incorporated dogs to keep deer away, but also we're looking for hardier stock, ones that are able to, that are resilient to the parasites that we find here in Kentucky with our hot, humid climate. Another challenge is that, I say challenge, but it's also a blessing at the same time. We in Kentucky, thankfully, are a cottage industry craft appreciating state. So the opportunity for handcraft of hand spun, hand knit, hand woven, those kinds of items that somebody can do on a smaller scale on as an individual farmer can take their fiber harvest all the way through to a finished garment and be able to make it into a lovely profitable product that is here and available in this state. However, for the industry to grow, we definitely need to move beyond that to more of a commercial production level. And that especially is difficult when the fiber producer's involvement in the supply chain is just to produce the raw fiber because the profit margins, like I said, in that kind of situation are very small. And so it's tough to justify or, you know, even for the farmer to be able to pay themselves a salary for a year's worth of work, you almost have to, as a farmer, do some kind of value added product out of the harvest in order to sell it at a margin where you can make a decent profit. There's been a couple co-ops across the United States where it has been mostly focused on the beginning part of the manufacturing chain. So they have been doing finished products, but the turnaround time is a challenge because if you think about it, you grow the fiber for a year on the animal and then at that point you harvest it and it enters into the manufacturing chain, which could take up to a year for it to go from the raw commodity into a finished product that you can sell at a decent price to the public. So that's essentially two years before I even have an opportunity to sell something to make a profit. So that's a challenge. I mean, who would work for two years without making any money and forking out all of those expenses without having cash flow back to the farm? So that's a challenge with cooperative approaches is it takes so long to be able to get money back into the farm. There is a company in New England called the New England Alpaca Fiber Pool and they are a for-profit business and the way that they operate is kind of like a bank where you send in your fiber and they go through and they validate what you have sent them and upload that amount into your fiber account. So I can go online in their website, just the same as I can go into my bank account and I can bring up my balance in my bank account and I can see the transaction log of all the different things that I've bought with my card or checks. 
So with the fiber pool, instead of being a co-op, it's like a bank where you're submitting your fiber and when you bring up your account, you see your balance and that's the balance of the quality fiber that you've submitted. And then you can go shopping in their catalog. You bring up all the finished products that they produce and say a dozen gloves, for instance. Say it's like it takes a pound and a half of fiber to produce a dozen of those gloves. So I want to order those dozen gloves. I add those to my cart. Well, it deducts that pound and a half of fiber out of my fiber account. And it's not guaranteed that those dozen gloves that I'm getting are exactly my fiber because it's commingled with farmers from all over the United States. They also don't have a delay. So I can send them fiber and as soon as they have that fiber uploaded into my account, then I can go in and make purchases of finished product. So I know, just common sense, I know that those gloves don't have my fiber in them specifically if that's the first year that I've submitted because I just sent it to them. There's no way they could have made those gloves so quickly. I want to say this will be our third year contributing. I want to say we've sent 600 pounds to them a year. I know that our fiber isn't a decent amount of the stuff that I am buying back from them. And when I say buy back, the manufacturing cost is what I'm paying them for. So they are a manufacturing company. I'm paying them for the manufacturing of those gloves, but the manufacturing rate is much cheaper this way because of that economy of scale. Because they have to do, you know, like 500 pound minimums to do one run of one product. So it's much cheap, manufacturing is much cheaper that way, and I don't have the, the delay. I really appreciate that model for those reasons. And so I'm curious uh, to continue the conversation on what opportunities we might have to be able to do something similar with manufacturing companies here in Kentucky. I don't want to replicate what existing manufacturing companies are already doing. There's already the one I've already mentioned, New England Alpaca Fiber Pool. They have their product catalog. They have a great list of products. I wouldn't want to create the same exact products that they do, but I would like to see what opportunities there would be to expand the products available that are made from domestically sourced natural fiber and manufactured here in Kentucky. What are your dreams and visions for your own business or your own farm in the future? So perfectly timed. I just, uh, gosh, a couple weeks ago, opened up registration for ranch camp. So my kids now are six and two. So they'll be seven and three by the time that camp comes around. So they're old enough now that we love having folks come out to the farm. I love sharing all of this. I mean, we're sitting out here looking out the window. The sun is shining. The grass is green. Animals are out there. And my kids come home from school and they play with sticks and they play with dirt and they play with rocks and they play with mud. And they may or may not kick poop around. And You know, I, I think there is a longing in our society for a return of that time of that childhood of where kids aren't in front of the TV or in front of a tablet or a phone or the computer or where kids are playing outside. 
And I think even adults to be given the the freedom to be able to play again and not be professional and adult like and you know let's go see be silly let's ro- let's get dirty let's go explore i love opening up our farm for folks to be able to come and visit we do we have for a number of years now given tours so we give tours thursday through sunday three times a day by appointment folks love it i mean we everybody has a great time it's educational and fun. It's one of those things where everybody's learning by proxy of just being out here in the experience. And I love that. I love instilling that curiosity and, and being able to share this way of life with folks. So I see Ranch Camp as the beginning of expanding the agritourism aspect of our operation more and more. I'd like to do workshops, not only on things like nature, native plants and trees and uh, getting down into the the dirt. There's all of that, but there's also the fiber side of it too, of, okay, well, let's go forage for color. There's, of course, goldenrod gives you a bright yellow, but did you know that black walnut gives you orange? There's all kinds of things to discover on the fiber side too. Pokeberry, which is totally toxic, not not edible at all, gives you a gorgeous purpley wine color dye on fabric. Even the weeds out here have a purpose. (laughs) I love discovering things like that. Uh, So we're getting a hold of a bunch of field guides and taking folks out and discovering together. So we're doing shiitake mushrooms down in the woods for the first time this year. So we'll see how that goes. Horseradish, never even knew what a horseradish plant looked like. So we just decided, hey, let's grow one this year and see what happens. So every year we make new discoveries and the farm will continue to grow beyond alpacas, even though alpacas will always be the main production. We're, we're growing the farm to, to appreciate all that Kentucky has to offer in the diversity of it, the long growing season that we have, the rain that we're blessed with. We have a lot of opportunity with agriculture here. So we're gonna continue to see little bits and pieces of that added to our farm and and share it with others. To learn more about Alvina and River Hill Ranch, visit www.riverhillranch.us. You can also find her, River Hill Ranch, on Facebook and Instagram. For WMMT, I'm Elizabeth Sanders with Appalachian Transition Fellows Hope Hart and Sam Hamlin.